Hi, I'm Paul Shepard, your Holistic Mindset Coach, and welcome to the Mindset Change Podcast, where you can be inspired and learn how to transform your mindset so you can create the life you truly want to live. Today, I'm excited to have in my studio British Diving Olympic silver medalist Leon Taylor, who's very busy being an executive coach, mentor to Olympic and Paralympic athletes, creator of the Mindset and Movement Programme, and is also author of Leon's Magic Mantra. His TEDx talk on how to manage your mental health has been watched nearly 2 million times. If you're new to the show, please subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And welcome, Leon. Thanks very much, Paul. Delighted to be joining you. I'm glad to have you here because we're going to dive right in. Jokes about diving in (laughs) right in are probably going to feature a lot. I'm really um, sorry about that. But one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is I've watched your TEDx talk about uh, mental health and movement. And it's been watched by nearly 2 million people. I don't know if you've seen the latest stats on it. So it's still doing very well. But I think most people know that exercise is good for them, but they might not be sure why. So how does movement really help someone who's got stress, anxiety, or any other mental health issues? Yeah, well, what a great place to, to, to begin. So I think it's widely acknowledged by most of the population that uh, physical movement, uh, exercise and moving your body is good for you physically. So it keeps the cells healthy, it's uh, cardiovascularly. So this is widely known. And of course, when you're looking at body composition and maintaining a healthy weight and such like, we know that movement as well as nutrition is one of the ways that you can um, move towards higher levels of health. You know, there's lots of factors that are involved. But when I was uh, researching my TEDx talk, I was fascinated to see the link between physical movement and one's mental well-being and mental health. And I think it's often overlooked the benefits. We sometimes make movement stressful. Mm-hmm. We think I must, you know, force myself to do exercise. I must force myself to go for a run, but I hate running. I must go to the gym, but I don't like it. And, and we find ourselves in this world of creating even more stress. I think what was interesting for me is that stress is a global epidemic, uh, but stress is both good and bad. So there's probably a place to start there as to, to this notion of what is stress and how it shows up in someone's nervous mm. system. But the research I was doing was showing the physical movement, even light physical movement, even just changing the position of your body completely transforms what's going on in your nervous system. And we often spend, and I argue this in my TEDx, too much time stuck in our heads, uh, trying to think our way out of the problems. But sometimes thinking can make those problems worse, especially when we fall in patterns of overthinking. And this is speaking to your question around stress and anxiety. I would argue stress and anxiety from a um, psychological point of view, the overthinking is playing a huge part in it. And of course, if we try and think our way out of overthinking, we get even more in a muddle. So one of the quickest and most effective ways to disrupt that pattern of overthinking is to move the body from whatever your ability is. So if you're in a wheelchair, you know, moving the upper body, you know, vice versa, there's always a way that we can move our body. And it doesn't necessarily need to be vigorous. You don't need to force your body into doing something that you don't enjoy or don't want to do. And that frees up 
people uh, to look at movement, and I'm specifically using movement rather than exercise, or exercise plays a part, in a way to disrupt the buildup of stress, but also to completely change their experience in the world. And what I mean is how we experience the world. I mean, mindset change, you know, that's the filter of, of how we experience what happens to us, how thoughts, feelings, emotions, how we, our beliefs drives that, our attitudes and ultimately our behaviours. But our experience of the world can be completely changed by if you and I were to now stand up, Paul, and to stretch our arms up into the air yeah. into something that could be defined as a power pose. We would change our neurobiology in such a way just in a few minutes that when we sat down, we would notice a change in our mood. And arguably, if either one of us or both of us was a little bit nervous or stressed about this interview, that would be a fantastic way of settling ourselves down. So it has a profound effect, even in small doses. And in larger doses, physical movement exercise can be shown to change the, the shape of the brain, various neurochemicals of release, which repair the brain, mm. which heal the brain, provide new connections, particularly in the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex, which of course are the control centers of the brain. And regular exercise has been proven now. Wendy Suzuki, one of the foremost researchers in neuroscience, has shown that uh, cognitive decline over time can be changed through uh, a regular movement wow. uh, commitment or exercise commitment yeah. in this case which so it's fascinating this isn't anecdotal there's tons of research out there now and when i was taking my deep dive into the research <laughs> i was blown away by the importance of regular physical movement for our mental fitness you know we look at our physical fitness but this is mental fitness through physical movement that's such a good answer and it's I really like the the way that you're describing, just making it simple, because you're right. People do think about exercise as in they see themselves not being able to cope in being hot, sweaty. It's too much of a challenge. So their mind puts them off of it. But what you're saying is just simply getting out of the chair or just moving your arms around can make a big difference in regards to their physiology and to release to relieve stress. Yeah, I think there's a, a two-pronged attack, I think, Paul. So there is the um, the disruption of the buildup of distress. So let's just go into stress. So stress is good for you and stress is bad for you. So what the hell do we do with that? So I really like the definition. I know you'll be familiar with this as you stress and distress. Yeah. So in short, you stress is a stress uh, on the nerv nervous system, which you respond positively to. So a great example would be uh, this morning, I lifted a heavy weight above my head, causing a massive stress in my body. I put the weight down and I stopped and I rested and I recovered from that acute stress. And therefore the adaption meant that I got the benefit out of it. Okay. So I will come away yeah. stronger. Um, another one would be just before I go on stage to do one of my presentations, I feel an acute rush of adrenaline in my body. That's a stress which focuses my mind. I do a little breathing technique and then I go on stage in front of a few hundred people and I'm able to perform. Again, a stress. Okay. The stress that we are looking to avoid is distress. This is the inescapable stress. This is the stress that is putting you into your sympathetic uh, side of your nervous system. So fight, flight or freeze. And it feels inescapable. So one person's use stress 
is could be another person's distress. So there could be pressure from a work point of view. Someone could thrive under that, but another person would be overwhelmed by it. And they would be constantly in a state of stress. Neurobiologically, their stress hormone cortisol would be high. Cortisol is useful in small doses. It gets mm. us up and gets us going. But in, in constant doses in the nervous system, damages the cells of the body, damages parts of the brain. So distress is what we're looking to avoid. Now, you can't avoid it completely, but you can disrupt it. And one of the most effective ways, in my experience and the research I've done, to disrupt the buildup of stress is to physically move the body. So often when we're in a place of distress, I would imagine that I certainly carry tension in my jaw, yeah. my shoulders are hunched, I may be over the laptop, the emails are coming in or whatever it is, I'm poisoning my body from a neurochemical point of view, but I can't get up because I'm in the middle of something. So what can I do? Well, I can drop my shoulders, I can expand through the front side of the body, I can relax my jaw and my face, and I can deepen my breath. Nasal breathing, I'm a big fan of breathing techniques, so nasal breathing into the belly, using the diaphragm, and this shifts from sympathetic towards parasympathetic, and just stops that buildup of distress. Wow. And then when I get to lunchtime, if that's where my schedule allows, if I can get up and I can walk, if I could walk around the block, if I could move vigorously, if I could jump up and down and shake mm. vigorously, yeah. you know, whatever you can do will allow you to disrupt the buildup of stress. And then alongside that, Paul, I cannot, uh, you know, encourage people strongly enough to find a consistent movement routine. So walking, dancing, uh, cartwheeling, uh, Zumba, <laughs> um, swimming, uh, tennis, table tennis, whatever it is. Now, it doesn't need, it could be gardening, could be cleaning the house vigorously. So let's move away from this, I need to exercise, like onerous, to find movement that you like to do and then create the opportunity to do it. And often doing it with other people can be one of those key motivation factors. I know you and I train at the same place, Paul, here in, in Brighton. And believe you me, if we were doing all of those exercises on our own, we'd need some serious self-discipline and motivation, which we probably both could muster. But it's so much better being in a room with someone else encouraging you, loads of other people doing it, and that shared joy of movement. So uh, uh, Kelly McGonigal's fantastic book, uh, The Joy of Movement, it, it talks and speaks to how uh, working, um, sorry, uh, moving alongside other people in dancing or in an exercise class can stimulate even more um, of those positive neurochemicals. Brilliant. I really, I think anyone listening to this will get an idea, hopefully an inspirational idea of what they can begin to do differently. It doesn't have to be hardcore exercise. What, you know, just looking at anyone who's listening to this and they're not sure if they're moving enough. Are there any physical signs that someone isn't moving enough? Are there any mental health signs that someone might not be moving enough? Yeah. And, and of course, I need to be really mindful now that, you know, we're all as unique mm -hmm. as our fingerprints. And, you know, if someone like me, for example, who uh, was a hyperactive child, I drove my parents up the wall. Um, my parents didn't know what to do with me. They took me to the family doctor who said, well, there's various, you know, prescriptions I can give you to calm Leon down. But my parents decided not to go down that route. They decided to try and tire me out through physical physical movement. So my uh, need for physical movement is a lot higher. And I really notice it, Paul, when I'm, um, maybe my routine is varied, uh, or maybe I'm with an injury as I am at the moment. Uh, sometimes my 
topping up my levels of physical movement. Sometimes they're a little bit low and I can really start to notice a sense of angst in my uh, physical, um, sorry, in my mental kind of wellness, like a bit more irritable, mm -hmm. less patient. Um, and my partner, Ali, often says, uh, we've been for a run today. Yeah. And that's her polite way of saying, you should probably go out and move because you're in a stinker of a mood. <laughs> you know? And we're, yeah. no, no one is immune to it. I mean, one of the things that I've been very... <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the things I've been very fortunate to explore over the years is various types of, of movement. And I have a regular yoga practice. I've been teaching yoga for over a decade. And there's always a way that I can move my body. So even if I'm getting up to travel somewhere at five in the morning, I always roll out my yoga mat for at least five minutes. Mm. So I prove to myself that I'm the type of person that moves every day. Even if I'm ill or injured, I find a way to continue to physically. And then other days, maybe I can fill my day with an Ironman triathlon, which I've been known to uh, to do over the years. Wow. So it's that commitment to the right amount of movement for me. Now, other people who aren't used to moving will find it difficult when they start because it's unfamiliar. The body has to adapt. So it's being um, aware of what's worked for you in the past but also being curious enough to find new ways and be open to new suggestions. I mean, I've just written a children's book and it's amazing when I go into the schools because the children are just like, yeah, I'll try anything. <laughs> I described the height of the diving board I used to dive off and I said, who wants to do that? And they all put the hand up. If oh, I told I you what, what it was like, Paul, you'd be like, there's no way I fancy standing backwards uh, on a 10 meter <laughs> board. But I think as adults and bearing in mind, we're just kids with bills. I think we need to look at the world in a more curious way and, and just you know, think, well, what would happen if I did try a new activity? Well, I get feedback. I decide whether it's for me or not, and I can go for there. So if you know, there's various signs our body needs something, but until we give it a try, we don't know what our levels are, what we actually need. And as you know, Paul, because when you start to regulate move or exercise or you get into a, a particular physical activity, you really start to build, you know, um, um, an excitement for it. And then, you know, that uh, virtuous cycle starts to move upwards and you, and you want to go even more because it gives you more energy. And that's the key. If you're doing movement, which boosts your mood, which changes your state, which gives you more energy, uh, which sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Then you found the right one at this moment in time for you. Yeah, no doubt. You're boosting your mitochondria cells, so there's going to be much more in the way of uh, your, you know, battery packs being formed within you. And that's the thing when people say, "Where do you get all your energy from?" It literally is from building it up from regular movement. You know, you know, I'm a big fan of exercise, and it's nice to see you outside of lycra. So, so uh, it's like you know, we we have normal clothes. A lot of the people I hang around with, I only ever see them in lycra. So that's a uh, you know that's the thing is that's, right. that's, that's the community of people I hang around with. So you're more likely to do it yourself. But if you know, if there's anyone listening to this who has a resistance to movement, what advice would you give them if they can feel that you know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but that inner resistance that stops us doing something? What advice would you have for them? Yeah, I mean it. It, it depends, isn't it? It's it's always that opportunity to go how interesting what is my resistance you know mm. and asking that question to yourselves like what is it what am i afraid of if that's a factor uh what am i worried about and then once you start to find out what is in your way you can then start to think well what could be a way through that 
Uh, time is a big one. Mm. I've got no time to move. Okay, great. So do you brush your teeth every morning? Most people would say yes. So would it be possible for you to do 10 squats while you're brushing your teeth? Possibly. Well, yes, I could do that. That's not going to make me fit. Well, the goal isn't to make you fit. The goal is to just to introduce some physical movement into a daily routine that you are almost unaware of, that it starts to become an identity habit. James Clear talks about these wonderful ways of stacking habits and bringing things in so that, uh, you know, the fundamental rule to bringing anything new into one's routine by way of a habit is it needs to be established before it can be improved. So there's no point in forcing yourself to go to the gym for an hour when you hate it. But if you do 10 squats and each day you do that, you know, over a week and two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and suddenly it's part of what you do, then the next step might be a little bit more interesting because mm. you've already built up and you've proven to yourself with small wins that you're the type of person that is committed to moving every day because you know that it's good for X, Y, and Z. And everyone has a different buy-in and there's different levels to that. But I think one of the biggest things is find a tribe, find a friend who is also doing a similar thing and join in. You can keep each other motivated, accountable. You can make it fun uh, because solo motivation's fickle. When you need it the most, it's not yeah. there. So accountability and commitment are things to create through environment and, and choices. And that can really inspire you to stick with it because as you know paul if you're going to make any changes it's all about consistency there's definitely and you know we aren't what we do occasionally we are what we do consistently yeah i really love that you mentioned james clear and what he talks about in regards to atomic habits and uh bj fogg i uh, just just brought to mind bj fogg did the book um tiny habits and he talked about every time he went to the bathroom he did uh, a few press-ups after having a pee and that's how he began to build into his life a uh, exercise routine, whereas before there was a level of resistance. So just by saying every time he peed and pulled the flush, and pulling the flush was a sign to do some press ups. <laughs> you know, that was uh, that thought it was quite genius to actually just get that element of moving into his daily life. Yeah. And, and, and I encourage all of your listeners and viewers to be creative, you know, just because Paul or Leon make this suggestion or whatever mm. it is. But like, you know, you could be standing on one leg in a tree position while you're making your uh, cup of coffee, you're training your proprioception. You can be doing cartwheels in the garden with, you know, the dog, the cat, your children, whatever it is for you. You know, I had a, a friend, I work as an executive coach and uh, one of the uh, clients that I was working with a number of years ago, she was like, look, I haven't got time to move. I don't really want to do lots of resistance. So I was like, well, what did you used to do when you were young? And she was like, well, oh, I used to go roller skating. And I thought, how fun. And she happened to have a child of a roller skating age. And so, of course, my suggestion was very simple. What would happen if you spent time with your children because you're time poor and you both learned this activity and you were relearning but teaching at the same time? Boom. Wow, it was the magic movement. And of course, as we worked together, she reported that. And then, of course, then she was like, and now I'm running and now I'm watching my <laughs> nutrition. And such like, And that was the uh, the shift yeah. right into what other healthful habits can I bring into my routine rather than me piling on. Here's 10 things you need to do to transform your wellness. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, what's the one thing that's then going to lead 
to to the others and and that, i think that's a great example because you're combining the joy of movement the joy of motherhood and interacting with your daughter and all of those wonderful things that you would be doing anyway but creating a learning environment a growing environment and imagine the dance that's going on in the nervous system and the brain when all of that's taking place yeah, do you know what? i really really love your message about not making it a fitness goal but to have fun and just make it a goal just to move more however you're doing it I think that's a really powerful message that I hope people listening to this are feeling inspired by because I think when we talk about movement and exercise, people think of abs and looking super fit and it looks unattainable uh, and it looks too hard as well if you've never really done anything like that. You know, I meditate on a day-to-day basis and I do yoga and it's for me, for us, it's, it's been taking years and years of practice to get to anywhere to where I am. I don't even class myself as, um, you know, professional in any way of those. You know, I always feel like I'm learning something new. But it just takes consistency, but just small steps at the same time and make it fun. It's got to be fun. Otherwise, those, those dopamine uh, hits are not going to come and remind you to do it next time. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, so for me, exactly the same. I, I, I come from a world of high performance sport where it was about being the best in the world. And that's a tyranny, right? I, I love uh, Brené Brown's work and one of the um, uh, reflections of her work is progress, not perfection. Mm. You know, and, um, you know, I, when I teach yoga, I say this is called yoga practice, not yoga perfect. I don't really care what your posture looks like as long as you're breathing and you're not forcing your body into a position that it's not comfortable in. If you're attempting to move the body in this direction and hold here mm. using your breath, then that is brilliant. Well done. Because a lot of the resistance, especially from you know, males, is, oh, I can't do yoga because I'm stiff. I say, well, that's exactly what an opportunity you have through the practice of yoga to increase your mobility. Because without our mobility, our options are limited. Mm. We can't do other activities. And of course, once it's lost, it's very difficult to get back. So it's not about being bendy and flexible. It's about just increasing the mobility and just rocking up and doing it consistently. Uh, and then the benefits, you know, after that period of consistency are yours to enjoy. And what, again, absolutely. But what do you do for exercise? What's your go-tos? And I mean, obviously, I knew that I've, I've worked out with you in the same studio at F45. But what do you like? What's your favorite things to do? Yeah, so my sport is sporting uh, life started from a very early age. I was a swimmer and a gymnast from you know before I can remember. Diving, of course, was the sport that I ended up focusing on and competing for uh, for twenty two years. My uh, professional well, uh, full time sports sports career taking me to, to 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 three Olympic games. But then, of course, at the end of my career, I was completely broken. Uh, and that's not an over-exaggeration. I'd had four reconstructive shoulder surgeries, a worn-out disc in my lower back. I just recovered from hernia surgery. And uh, the medical wow. team at the English Institute for Sport, to get my attention, told me if I was a horse, they'd probably have to shoot me. <laughs> and so at the age of 30, Paul, I was ready for the knacker's yard. Jeez. And uh, it's quite a powerful story because I... Could, I was used to training for six or seven hours a day, and, and you know, that was my routine. And then I was told I needed to stop. But if I stopped, I would fall apart. So they made this suggestion of trying something like yoga in order to rebalance my very 
unbalanced body. My body was very good at doing certain movement patterns, but completely alien. Some others were completely alien. So the practice of yoga, as soon as I retired, allowed me to open up my hips, take the pressure off my lower back, create a little bit more stability through my body. I started to move very mindfully, which I'd never done before. Diving is a ballistic, powerful, plyometric sport where you're hitting the water at over 35 miles an hour. You're boom, you're, oh, honestly, it's an incredibly challenging and damaging sport. So for me to move into something movement-based like yoga was very different, but the results were incredible. Within six months of practicing in a hot room, pretty much every day. I found myself pain-free for the first time in what would have been over five oh, years. Wow. So the lower back yeah. was then pain-free. Combination of the yoga practice and stopping the straining activities, the heavy weights that I was doing. And then that freed me up to then start exploring other movements. And I won't lie, um, I hated running. And I would say that I hate running. Okay. Um, I don't know what my <laughs> reasons were, but then I had this opportunity to then as a speaker and a presenter and, you know, an inspirational speaker looking at high performance and mindset. Then I'm like, well, hang on. If a client said to me, I hate this, what would my response would be? Oh, tell me more you know, find out more. So I self-coached myself to find out what my resistance was to running. And of course, decided to take on a project to see, well, if I could run a marathon for charity, being a I hate runner, uh, I hate running, can I do that? And what can I learn from it? So in 2009, a year after I retired from uh, my 22-year diving career, I ran the marathon uh, for Sports Aid. I absolutely loved it. I'm able to take uh, take on running now and find the enjoyment in it, although I'm not a natural runner. I find it very challenging. Um, but of course, running, uh, I could do anywhere in the world. I just need you know, my pair of trainers and you know, depending on the weather, some kits. So it was able, I was able to start to learn a new skill, to be outside in nature. As we know, there's huge benefits for that. And so there, and then of course, being a novice again, I was making huge improvements. I was learning. I was speaking to people of, how do you do this now? I've done ultra marathons and a few other things, not because I want to be the best in the world, but because it just opens up nature and connectedness, sharing it with other people, movement uh, alongside others. And that led me into to experimenting and playing with triathlon. And to celebrate my uh, 40th birthday, I did the Ironman triathlon in, in Lanzarote. Right. You know, again, friends and family were out there, and it was about completion not about personal best and medals and trophies because I'd been in that world. Now it's a much healthier adventure. And, and now I kind of mix it up. So as a functional fitness training is a huge passion of mine, my body's a little bit more robust now. And as a father of a two-year-old, I'm a little bit more time poor. <laughs> okay. So a six-hour bike ride around the South Downs isn't so much of an option anymore. <laughs> uh -huh. um, actually, going back to your diving career, um, what led you to, you know, I was looking through your achievements and we hadn't won a medal in diving for 44 years. What led you to go, do you know what, I'm going to go for that? Yeah, I mean, it... It happened very organically, though, Paul. Okay. So that is what happened, rightly so. In 2004, Peter Waterfield and I, in the men's 10-meter synchronized diving, so that's both people uh, diving together, same time, off the same diving board. You're getting marks for the execution of the dives, but also the synchronization. So it's a 
incredibly exciting discipline within diving. So diving's been in the Olympic Games since 1904. It's always been an individual sport, but then a bit like the relay in swimming or athletics, you get to, you know, over the years since 2000 Olympic Games, that's been part of the of the program. Now, when I started diving and I was eight, I just had dreams of going to the Olympic Games. When I was six, I watched it on the TV and any sport would do because I was a child, but I just wanted to go and experience the magic of, of the Olympic Games. And as it happens for me, where I was based, a bit of luck and randomness, a local club, diving club, I was able to get a good start in the sport. The fact that I did gymnastics for many years, um, you know, transferable skills acrobatically meant that I was able to progress very quickly. And so I accelerated through the ranks when I was 11. I was the best in the country for my age group, same at wow. 14, at 16. 16, I made the men's team. At 18, I qualified for my first Olympic Games. And then as you start to experience, it starts to go, well, what is possible? And of course, the introduction of the synchronized diving meant that I could do multiple events. So the springboard, the platform and the synchronized. And it just so happened that my partner and I, Peter Warfield, were, you know, on that verge of breaking through. And in the Sydney Olympic Games in 2000, we were fourth. Okay. So agonizingly close. close to breaking that medal drought. And then, of course, four years later, after two reconstructed shoulder surgeries, a period of ill mental health and physical challenge, you know, to come through and to stand on the, on the podium 20 years after I watched the Olympic Games on the TV as a six-year-old was uh, was an incredible moment, and you know, in the uh, in the history books of the of the sport. And how did you? As I said, it's, it's such an amazing uh, set of achievements, and uh, you know, I love that you put this into almost like an autobiography in your new book, Leon's Magic Mantra. Because I had a read through, and I think it's wonderful for kids. Can you tell me how did that come about as well? Did you, yeah, there it is. Um, how did this come about? That you've and what's this, what's the purpose behind it? Why this book? Yeah, thank you. So now I'm a, I'm a father, um, and I've been uh, you know viewing the world very differently. But I've had the wonderful opportunity over the years to go into to schools to share my Olympic medal, talk about my dreams and aspirations, and inspire all of these uh, young children all over the um, all over the country, and in some cases all over the world. And it's something that's massively rewarding for me intrinsically. And when I had the opportunity to work with Sarah Griffiths, who's a children's author, she'd worked with a few other sports people before to bring their inspirational story to life I really felt I could combine my work as a as a performance coach and a mindset coach my fascination into the psychology of performance and wellness and bring it all together using my years as a as a young sports person what I learned along the way and the main intention behind the book is to utilize my story to improve children's self-belief now we talk about the magic mantra is something I used to say to myself before I would go into a situation where I was going to be scared. And in this context, it was diving, standing on the end of a diving board on your tiptoes with people staring at you and you've got to somersault through the air. And if you get it wrong, it really, really, really hurts. You know, I suffered injuries when I was young and then that filled me with fear. And of course, this is common, whether it's children mm. or adults, we find ourselves fearful. We find ourselves getting in our own way. And what I um, share in the book 
some practical techniques, so visualization, breathing and smiling, changing our physiology, being curious, but of course the mantra, what we say to ourselves as well to seal in that uh, that focus or that enjoyment or whatever it is, just give me gave me the chance to share this story in a, in a different way. I wrote a book previously on mentoring, a huge uh, area of passion for me, you know, giving back to the, in my case, the next generation of young athletes, sharing my experiences in a way to inspire them. Now I'm very proud to be, um, yeah, to be able to capture it in a, in a wonderfully illustrated children's book. But of course, a lot of the feedback I've been getting is that it's not just for children, there's some wonderful messages in there. There's a section at the end called Time to Talk, Time to Listen, where we go into a little bit more detail of the messages or the practicalities of what one could do. I'm sure you enjoyed that section there because it just very much simplifies what can one do, whether it's the person who's reading the story, whether it's the child, or even better, a conversation between the two. And that's certainly the feedback we've been getting since the book's been released. Well, do you think that you would write something maybe for a slightly older audience with those same practicalities? Because I think that information was gold when I was reading it. I can see what it would do for children, but I was looking at it and I was just seeing a very clear set of instructions for someone's mindset around exercise, around visualization, around using a mantra, not just for sport, but for life itself. I agree. So it forms the basis of my work as a uh, as a coach, executive coach, as a speaker and a presenter, you know, all of the areas that, uh, that you've just mentioned that I'm sharing in the book inform my um, delivery. So I love to be in person. I was lucky enough, uh, we're recording this. In July, I was at a speaking event up at Sheffield Hallam University. Yesterday, I had students um, who were a tough audience, but you know, it was really wonderful to share some of the insights and observations that I've gleaned that would be applicable to them at their stage in life. And something that I really enjoy, as I know you do through mm. your coaching, is is really getting into, well, what are people doing now that's working for them? And what could they potentially explore which would add to that? Because most people visualize, but they often visualize things going wrong, yeah. <laughs> which is the complete opposite to what you could do. You could take a moment to visualize yourself cool, calm, and collected in the context that's maybe causing a little bit of angst instead of going, oh, my God, and then you naturally yeah. visualize you know, the wheels coming off. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? And those skills can be, can be developed. So maybe yeah. is I'm, I, you know, I'm dodging the question a little yeah. bit. You know the, the 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 capturing of a book and the delivery. There's lots of inspiration out there, and I feel you know d- delivering it in person is something that I'm really drawn to, and and that fills me with a lot of um, intrinsic reward and joy. No, obviously you do. You obviously do what works for you. And uh, one thing I was really interested in when I was looking through your career was, you know, obviously you had to retire due to injuries. You know, um, and after you know, you 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 reached a level of success, and then had to retire. And what was that like for you? What? How did you manage your mindset in regards to what you would be doing next? Yeah, what a wonderful question. It's a huge challenge, uh, and still will always continue to be. Is um, for athletes who come to the end of their career, I guess. Arguably, two things happen: either the mind goes, "I've had enough," <laughs> or the body says, "I can't do it anymore." Yeah. And in my case, it was the body uh, finally uh, reached its uh, level of uh, tolerance to what I was asking it to do. Just couldn't do it anymore. And that was actually an easier decision because it was almost taken away. The medical team showed me the red card as I gave them permission to. Mm-hmm. And, and that was it. I think uh, my case was slightly different, though, Paul, because I'd been through such a challenging period 
uh, earlier in my career where I realized that um, one day sport would come to a close and that I was drastically unprepared for that. My first two shoulder surgeries were before I won my Olympic medal. Luckily, I came through that and a period of depression, mental health challenge to then stand on the podium. And that gave me you know, the understanding and the, um, the experience I needed to then be very much aware that I was on borrowed time by way of my athletic career at this particular level. And at one point it would come to its close. And I started to do some work and that work was very simple. It was like removing my identity from what I did, as in I am an Olympian, to I am Leon, a human being, and I choose to do sport at a high level. And then once I managed to do that with the help of some excellent coaches, I was able to go, well, what do I enjoy? What are the things that are important to me? And really start to look at where I could focus my attention as and when my sporting career came to a close. So I was drastically underprepared, of course, because you can never be fully prepared. But I did have some idea on the areas that I wanted to pursue and continue. And I started those to a certain degree while I was still competing. So it was a reasonably smooth transition into some areas but the big gift to me were the medical team and they said look you need to do something like yoga and I had no idea what it was and now it's an important part of my life and my business and what I do and I didn't know that existed until I'd stepped away from the sport so I didn't have it all planned out but I did have a few things so my BBC commentary my public speaking inspirational speaking, some of the TV stuff. And I knew that performance was important part for me. So standing on a stage is a bit like standing on a diving board. Ah. So I knew that that would fire my nervous okay. system in a positive way. So the difference is I'm just not wearing my budgie smugglers anymore. <laughs> well, I might be, but I'm under you know, my clothes. That is such a big mindset shift change. And I think anyone listening to that could be inspired to think about because it is quite a change from one you know your goals and dreams for one area of life and you've made a transition you had help you had coaching and support to help you move and, and create the life that you have now what would what advice would you give to anyone who is you know not able to live the life that they want anymore or not really living the life of their dreams but would like to make that transition yeah, I think um, it's getting uh, – so how I chose uh, and found the sport that I enjoyed the most when I was young was I just tried everything. Okay. <laughs> and I think as adults, we sometimes uh, we sometimes uh, take a little bit too, too much of a cautious approach, like, oh, no, I'm not going to like that. Mm. I can't do this. And we get in our own way. So the, the freedom of exploring and trying new things can inspire – um, new curiosities, and you can really start to find um, areas that you didn't know existed. But it's that it's it's that small kind of action. See what you think. Get the feedback. You know, pursue or step back and be really creative, as if you were an eight-year-old trying to find a new passion. I think sometimes we think our way out of things that might be um a uh, a source of joy and inspiration and uh, and challenge you've got to kind of techniques i i you understand what's important to you one of the coaching uh, is, is really getting to to the nub of it it's like well what's important to you when you think of career you know and then asking that question mm. again and again and really trying to elicit some values and some things that are important because if you're if the things that are important to you are um 
acknowledged or you you tick them off through an experience then you're more likely to stick to it and it's more likely to be a fit and ultimately if you're stuck where you are and you cross-reference it with your values or those things that are important to you and you realize some there's some big gaps then you know why this isn't working and what you yeah. could explore um otherwise you know you'll still be in the same position in 10 years and you'd have missed out on that 10 years of uh, of, of exploring and finding new new things so i think starting in you know, taking that yeah. first step and just being a bit more curious as to what else is out there i think curiosity is a big superpower i think as coaches that's what we're always you know in a way tickling with our clients not physically but tickling in a way getting them to really become curious because that's where we gain so much um so if people wanted to have coaching or yoga or do or or find out more about you where can they contact you Leon? Uh, yeah, so well, please uh, pop uh, a few contacts in uh, in in the show notes. Okay. So I know you do that wonderfully. Mm-hmm. So my website is a great place where you can contact me uh, and my team uh, directly to find out a little bit more about what I'm up to. My company, Adeki Performance, is the uh, coaching company where I run my executive coaching. What's unique about that is that we use biometric tracking to monitor stress and recovery balance. So this has been done in athletics and sports mm-hmm. people for donkey's years. Now it's available to all. And wow. I find that a really powerful way of starting a coaching relationship where I can look under the hood from a physiological point of view and we can have some big conversations around what's working, what changes might be made. So it's a really rewarding part of what I do and a, and a lovely use of the, the current technology available. So that's in the in, in the show notes. And of course, yeah, please, if you're uh, if you know young people or if like me, you're mm-hmm. just a kid with bills then uh, then see what you think to my uh, to my book uh, leon's magic mantra and then i suppose the last thing to remember my uh, something I'm very proud of during lockdown is I created something called Mindset and Movement, which I delivered every week, three times a week over Zoom publicly to reach people who are obviously all in lockdowns and stuck at homes, combining mindset coaching and movement. So yoga, a bit of hit training in there, some meditation, some breathing, absolutely everything. Right. And now I'm working with Retreat Away and I'm delivering a retreat in October. So if you want to break a fitness, wellness, restorative break uh, with me in the beautiful surrounds in in Portugal, then uh, I'd be delighted to, uh, yeah, to engage with you and share more about that. Sounds amazing. I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us your, uh, not only your story, but also, um, you know, the philosophy and the science around, uh, you know, movement and mental health. I think hopefully anyone listening to this, hopefully will get a lot from it. Um, Thank you so much for coming on to the show. And hopefully I'll see you at F45 soon. Look forward to it. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. Pleasure. You're welcome. Take care. If you or anyone you know is struggling with anxiety or stress, then I would really recommend New Mind Wellness's Stress Support Formula Supplements. As anyone knows, buying supplements can be costly, but this is brilliant because everything is in one tiny sachet. All your vitamins, minerals, adaptogens, ancient herbs and flower remedies and the top essentials I recommend to my clients including ashwagandha, magnesium glycinate and L-theanine. There's even a new probiotic version too. If you'd like to give them a try, you can get 20% discount off of your order by using the code PAUL20 in the checkout box. The link is in my show notes. And let's get back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode on mental health and movement. I hope it's inspiring you to think about your exercise and movement in a whole new way. 
Please share it with anyone you think would benefit from this information. And I look forward to connecting with you in the very next episode. Please have an amazing day.